0: Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash.
1: Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode features Helen Scales, Mira Senthalingam and Sarah Castor Perry, and I'm Ben Valsler coming up. How fossilised footprints can tell us about the steps leading to bipedal walking in humans.
2: And they've uncovered two sets of fossilised footsteps thought to have been left behind by Homo erectus strolling through deposits of volcanic ash near Lake Turkana in northern Kenya between 1.53 and 1.51 million years ago.
1: How ancient fish were the first vertebrates to enjoy internal
0: fertilisation. So we found out Not only that this major group were having internal fertilisation, but we found out how they were doing it. And we believe this shows the origin of the beginnings of sexual dimorphism in vertebrates.
1: And how unmanned autopilot aeroplanes could see more blood samples tested in rural Africa.
3: Well, you can actually take off with the conventional joystick sort of way, fly it along and then have programmed into it certain GPS points or certain flying patterns and then the type of thing that they've got in mind is to go and fetch blood samples from clinics that are far out in rural areas
1: plus a cd anniversary an escape attempt from an octopus and sarah castor perry discovers the invention of the periodic table this week in 1869 that's all on the way now, there are asteroids missing from the belt between Jupiter and Mars, and researchers now think that they were shoved out of place by two of our solar system's gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, as they assumed their current orbit some four billion years ago. Writing in the journal Nature, David Minton and Renu Malhotra from the University of Arizona identified gaps in the asteroid belt where there should be an even distribution of asteroids. There are some gaps existing, they're called Kirkwood gaps, and they are there because the gravitational of the planets makes certain regions in the belt actually quite unstable. Now, they were originally identified by Daniel Kirkwood in 1857, but some of them have actually remained a mystery until now. Minton and Malhotra designed a computer model of the asteroid belt, which took into account all of the existing gravitational influence that we know about. But their model actually started out with a uniform distribution of asteroids, So they ran their model to simulate four billion years and found that the Kirkwood gaps in their model matched very well to the ones that we observe in real life. But actually, in the real asteroid belt, there were several regions where there were very few asteroids, but the normal gravitational influence couldn't account for them being missing. There's already some evidence the orbits of Pluto and Neptune for example that the planets in our solar system have not always been in the same sorts of orbits we find them in now and so factoring this into account and winding the clock back in their model the observed gaps actually fit very well with the course that Jupiter and Saturn would have taken migrating to their present positions. The researchers estimate that actually, in the course of finding their place in our solar system, Jupiter and Saturn may have caused the asteroid belt to have lost almost 95% of its original pre-migration asteroids. So actually, the missing pieces of our asteroid belt can help us to fill in some of the missing pieces of the story, the history of our solar system.
2: It's quite incredible to think how we can wind back time all that way and figure out what was going on a long way back in time. But I'm going to wind the clock forward just a little bit further to about 1.5 million years ago, not to 4 billion years ago. And uh, as the Bee Gees sang in their 70s hit Staying Alive, there's a lot you can tell from the way someone uses their walk. And now it seems that our ancestors may have been walking like us for at least a million and a half years. Now that's according to a study published this week in the journal Science by a team led by Matthew Bennett from Bournemouth. University here in the UK and they've uncovered two sets of fossilised footsteps thought to have been left behind by Homo erectus strolling through deposits of volcanic ash near Lake Turkana in northern Kenya between 1.53 and 1.51 million years ago. Now walking on two feet is a key human adaptation that first evolved we think around 8 million years ago but until now there's not been enough evidence for when the modern human gait first evolved and apparently there aren't many feet in the fossil record. This is something new I've learnt Apparently because predators and scavengers like to eat feet and hands, so there aren't many of them around to find. Well, the the oldest known footprints at the moment from the human lineage are from Australopithecus afarensis, 3.7 million years ago. But those footprints from Tanzania revealed that our ancestors at that stage were still walking around with a more ape-like gait, with a splayed big toe and a foot generally suited for grasping onto things rather than for walking along the ground. Now, these newly discovered tracks in Kenya have um, the shape much more like what you would see um, that you've left behind as you're walking along a beach today and as we walk we put first our heel down which makes a big impression in the sand or whatever you're walking on if it's soft Um, and then as you move forward you move the weight onto the ball of your foot again making a deep impression and then we propel ourselves forward on our toes and most importantly our big toe is in line with the rest of our feet so again it's incredible to think that just a few individual Homo erectus left their footprints in the mud a long long time ago, a million and Half and a half years ago, and now their descendants have found those tracks, they've turned them, those tracks that have turned into stone, and we're using them to help unpick one of the great mysteries of human evolution.
1: It's incredible to think as well, because you need such precise conditions for any fossil to form. So something as delicate and fragile as a footprint, the fact that we've got them at all is in itself, well, really a miracle.
2: It's wonderful, yeah.
1: Well, also this week has seen the first birthday of a global seed bank that's based in Svalbard. Um, Rather than receiving a cake, though, they actually received a four-tonne shipment of seeds from all over the world, which brings the total number of seeds that they have up to 20 million seeds. Now, this place is described as the, uh, the custodians of the crown jewels of crop diversity, which is actually quite a mouthful to say. But seed banks like this one are essential not only as an archive of wild species and species that we've cultivated to keep them safe from what might happen in the wild... But they're also really good as an enormous genetic database that may enable us to grow more food crops and cope with changing climate. Now, there have already been some really not pleasant predictions that the changing climate could reduce maize production in southern Africa by up to 30% in just the next 20 years, which shows that we really need to maintain as diverse a range of crops as possible in order to adapt our agriculture to the climate. Without these stored seeds and the genetic secrets that they contain, we would actually struggle to maintain even the current level of food production. And this is bearing in mind that the population is going up all the time. Seeds arriving at the vault to celebrate its anniversary included 32 different varieties of potatoes, which is remarkable, I didn't even know there were that many varieties of potato, (laughs) as well as oats, wheat, barley, various wild grasses, and they're all travelling in from places like Canada, Ireland, Switzerland, the USA, Syria, Mexico, Colombia, although the seeds themselves are actually from all over the world. The Svalbard vault itself is an incredible feat of engineering, consisting of chambers carved 120 metres into the side of a mountain. That's how much they want to keep these seeds safe. And it actually has a capacity to store four and a half million different types of seeds. It's part of a global network, and they each duplicate the seeds that the others hold as a backup. So in the event of a global catastrophe, any one of them should be able to act as a Noah's Ark for agriculture.
2: That is quite incredible. Is there any particular reason why it's in Svalbard? Is it because it's cold there and they've got a mountain that they can dig a big hole into?
1: <laughs> Basically, yes. It, the conditions are right there. They know that it's higher, high up enough that when the ice melts, it won't flood. They know that something like inside the side of a mountain is a very good place to keep it. And it does need to be refrigerated. So the fact that it's in deep permafrost is very helpful because it means you spend less energy keeping it cool
2: sounds great. Well I'm going to finish off this week with another wonderful story from the oceans and uh, it isn't quite the great escape this story but aquarium keepers at Santa Monica Pier Aquarium in the United States were left knee deep in water this week when a cheeky octopus tried to make a break for freedom while well, this female two spotted octopus which is about 30 centimetres long swam up to the top of her tank and using her dexterous tentacles unscrewed the water valve on her tank releasing at least 200 gallons of seawater that gushed out into the aquarium causing havoc. And the wily escapologist survived this ordeal, but didn't actually quite manage to break out of her tank. She was still there when they found her in the morning. Well, octopuses are well known for their curiosity, nimble tentacles and their immense strength. And biologists are still not quite sure exactly how intelligent octopuses are. And we don't know for sure, really, if this octopus definitely knew what she was doing when she was fiddling with this tank tap, knowing that uh, this water would come out. But certainly it does seem that they are some of the brainiest invertebrates that there are. And um, octopus can do Things like learn how to open jars full of food, and they leap sometimes into neighbouring aquariums, looking around for food. Which I think that's a rather sweet <laughs> idea. Um, and I think, perhaps, in my personal opinion, the most brilliant animal in the world is something called the mimic octopus, which lives in Indonesia and it spends its life doing amazing impersonations of lots of different other sea animals, including sea snakes and flatfish and lionfish. It really is. It's got. I mean, that kind of behaviour has got to be backed up by some level of amazing intelligence, I'm sure. And I'd love to see one. So if anyone. Wants wants to take me to see one i'd be very happy um an octopus is apparently might have a sense of humor there's a story of an octopus that uh, when it was given a slightly off shrimp to eat it stuffed it in a drain while keeping eye contact with the aquarium keeper as if to say i'm not eating that so there you go, the wonderful world of octopuses.
1: And I'll bet this one had at least a bit of a giggle watching its keepers mopping up after it. Now, also in the news this week, Australian researchers have published a paper in the journal Nature confirming that fish were having sex over 380 million years ago. That's 30 million years earlier than we've ever known about before. Over in Australia, our friend Nikki Phillips from the ABC Radio National Science Show met up with John Long, who's Head of Sciences at Museum Victoria.
4: Geologist John Long and his team have discovered how ancient vertebrates have sex and even how their penis functioned. This research, combined with earlier finds, suggests that vertebrates separated into males and females in primitive fish almost 400 million years ago. Scientists have known ancient fish had sex since their discovery of a primitive mother fish with a fossilised embryo inside it in the Gogo region of Western Australia last year. The mother fish, a species called Tictodon, is from a group of extinct fish called Placoderms. Since then, scientists have pieced together fossil records of another species of Placoderms, called Arthrodise, and revealed they too contained embryos. These fossilised embryos are the oldest records of live birth invertebrates. And because live birth can't occur without sex, scientists knew that primitive fish were doing the deed, but how some of them were doing it has remained a mystery until now. John Long from Museum Victoria.
0: Now, looking at more of this amazing fossil fish material from the Gogo sites in Western Australia, we found that the biggest group of these armoured fish, the placoderms, the biggest group, the Arthrodires, also have embryos inside them and they were also fertilising by males copulating with the females. But this is something that we would not have expected because when you look at the group that the motherfish belongs to, the tictodonts, they actually show sexual dimorphism. The males have claspers and the females don't, and claspers are what we see in sharks and rays today. That, that's how they, they copulate. The arthrodires, on the other hand, their pelvic fins up until now have been always depicted as very simple structures, just like uh, simple fins. So it made us go right back and look again and look hard at these fossils to see if anything had been overlooked and then we found it. It was another fantastic eureka moment when you make a big discovery that for a hundred years has been completely overlooked. We found that these pelvic fins in these arthrodires had an extra articulation and that articulation meant that they had a long lobe attached to the fin that was directed behind the fish in a rearward direction and that it looks exactly like the claspers in modern sharks. So we found out not only that this major group were having internal fertilisation, but we found out how they were doing it. And we believe this shows the origin of the beginnings of sexual dimorphism in vertebrates.
1: So structures found on fossilised fish can tell us a great deal about the evolution of sexual dimorphism, that's different characteristics for males and females, and the more we understand about these ancient animals, the better we understand our own evolutionary history. That was John Long from Museum Victoria talking to Nikki Phillips from The Science Show at ABC Radio National, and that paper is out in this week's Nature.
0: Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at NakedScientists.com.
1: Still to come, Sarah Custer-Perry takes us back in time to find out what happened this week in science history. But first, Naked Scientist Mira Senthalingam spoke to our resident correspondent Kelvin Kem in Pretoria, South Africa, who's been seeing planes being shot out of catapults and with no pilot on board.
3: That's right. It's a UAV, which is an unmanned aerial vehicle. The total weight of this thing is 30 kilograms. And the interesting thing is it's just recently done its first autonomous flight. And that means it's run totally on autopilot. Now, South Africa, in fact, has many years' experience of designing uh, these types of vehicles that have been driven by a joystick, somebody sitting in a vehicle and flying the aircraft, something like a great big video game. But this is the first time one has run entirely on autopilot. This one, by the way, is called E-JUBA, E for like electronic as in email, and E-JUBA meaning big bird.
5: So how does this actually work on autopilot?
3: Well, you can actually take off with the conventional joystick sort of way, fly it along and then have programmed into it certain GPS points or certain flying patterns and then instruct it to go over to autopilot, which it then does by computer. And it can fly from one GPS point to another GPS point or it can fly a particular pattern. What it means is that it can fly far away from the controller. It's only limited by the amount of fuel you're carrying, for example. Now, interestingly enough, the type of thing that they've got in mind is to go and fetch blood samples from clinics that are far out in rural areas. Now, another interesting thing about this, if they keep the total mass below 30 kilograms, then by law, this is classified as a model aircraft. And that means it's much easier legally to maneuver the aircraft around and to land in certain places and so on. If it goes above 30 kilograms, it falls into a different legal bracket and then there's more stringent requirements on it flying over built-up areas or landing and so on. Now it's actually very easy for these people to launch, all they need is like a rubber band type of launcher.
5: So does it not need a runway as such?
3: It can use a runway, but where you don't have a runway, a reasonably ordinary catapult type thing can be provided, so all it's got to be done is sort of shot into the air to some degree and then it will power itself and off it goes. It's then programmed to return to a particular hospital with this blood sample.
5: What about landing?
3: It lands on a runway if there's a runway there, but it can also land into something like a catch net. The aircraft can be aimed into the net, and at the last moment you cut the motor so the thing essentially falls into the net. So if it does land in some very rocky area or some bushy area where there's there's no possibility of a runway, then that doesn't prohibit it from being launched again with something like a blood sample on board and, and heading back.
5: Now, what would happen if something was to actually get in the way of its flight path, though? Would it be able to deal with such a situation?
3: You obviously can build radars into it and so on to make it avoid such things. Obviously, every extra bit of fancy technology you add uh, adds to the weight. The ones that have been built in the past, South Africa has built some very big ones that have got all sorts of uh, monitors on them, and they can watch the ground in infrared and with real cameras. And, in fact, in real time, the operator sits in the back of the truck and can actually watch the ground and and so on and so forth. But those are a lot bigger than this 30-kilogram size. So now they're in the situation where it's flying autonomously, and they've got to now make decisions as to exactly what do they put on it to keep it under the 30 kilos. The aeroplane itself is about 20 and that allows for a 10 kilo payload.
5: Okay, well hopefully more of these aircrafts can be put in use to try and get blood samples from rural areas throughout Africa. Now also at the moment, there seems to be what is essentially a large battery being built in the Drakensberg mountains in South Africa.
3: That's right. There's a range of mountains, the Drakensberg mountains, which are the Dragon Mountains, that run between the province of KwaZulu-Nutel, which is the coastal province, in the more inland province of the Free State. There's a dam being built at the top of the mountain range on the Free State side, and then another one being built at the bottom on the KwaZulu-Natal side. The difference in height between these two dams is 470 meters. In other words, nearly half a kilometer. And they're about six kilometers apart. So what happens is the KwaZulu-Natal province has got a lot of water. But up on the top side, the Free State side is got much less water. It's a much drier province. So during the course of the off-peak electricity periods, they pump water up from the KwaZulu-Natal side up to the dam on the Free State side. And there it sits with its potential energy 470 meters higher now than it was before. Then when peak load times come like breakfast time and dinner time, they then let the water run back through the pumps and the pumps go in reverse and turn into turbines and produce power of 1,330 megawatts, which is substantial. Now, they don't let all the water run back, because part of the purpose is to supply water up into the free state, so some of the water stays up there and then gets reticulated off as agricultural supply and household water and so on. When there's a demand for electricity that might suddenly occur, say, outside peak hours, it's a reasonably simple thing to do to stop the whole system pumping and then run it back down the hill again into generator mode.
5: When is this likely to be completed and actually in use?
3: The target for the first unit to come online is April of 2012.
5: Now, you mentioned that it would hopefully generate about 1,330 megawatts of electricity. What kind of things could that provide power for?
3: A medium-sized town uh, uses about 150 to 200 megawatts. So what it does is it adds uh, this, the amount of a sizable couple of um, towns into the good when you need it.
5: So why was this idea developed?
3: Well, South Africa is running a bit tight on electricity at the moment. Uh, we actually made international news about a year ago when there were some rolling blackouts in the country. One of the problems that happens in every 24-hour cycle is that there's a peak requirement at breakfast time and a peak requirement at dinner time. And it's not a good idea to have a whole power station running only to supply an an hour's or so's worth of peak at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. It's good to have something like this big water battery that can be used only during a one or two hour period and at the same time act as a a water supply to the water-deprived province.
1: So this water pump not only provided electricity at crucial times, but also enables arid regions to have thriving agriculture. That was nuclear scientist and engineer Kelvin Kem in Pretoria talking to Mira Senthilingam. The Naked
0: Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science.
1: And now Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back in time to find out how the chemical elements were first sorted.
6: This week in science history saw, in 1869... Dmitry Mendeleev present his theory for the ordering of the elements into a periodic table to the Russian Chemical Society. In 1869, houses were still lit by gas lamps, the Suez Canal opened, linking Europe and Asia by water without having to navigate around Africa, and the first issue of the journal Nature was published. The first to suggest that there were more elements in the world than the four of earth, air, fire and water, as suggested by the Greeks, was Robert Boyle in the mid-1600s, over 200 years before Mendeleev presented his table. Several other scientists in the 19th century had attempted groupings of elements, such as Johann Dobereiner, whose law of triads in 1829 suggested that the elements should be grouped in threes, where the middle element would have properties that were the average of the elements either side. His example of chlorine, bromine and iodine was extended some years later to include fluorine, and other scientists realised properties extended over groups larger than three. As more elements were discovered, patterns in their properties began to emerge. The French scientist Duchamp Courtois and the Englishman John Newlands both put forward more complex ideas on the ordering of elements in the early 1860s. But by 1869, 63 elements had been discovered, and Mendeleev chose to order them in a way no one had done before. He wrote out a card for each element with their name, atomic mass and chemical properties on, then laid them out like a game of solitaire according to their chemical properties rather than their mass number, which despite being pretty inaccurately calculated had been the conventional way to set them out at the time. Mendeleev's periodic table showed the similarities and trends over much larger numbers of elements, both in vertical groups and horizontal periods in the table, rather than just in small groups such as Döberiner's Law of Triads. He left spaces for elements he believed were yet to be discovered and predicted their properties. He was proved right by the discovery of gallium, scandium and germanium later in the 1800s. And it's because of these predictions that Mendeleev is often considered more important in the discovery of the periodic table than the German scientist Lothar Meyer, who independently published a very similar table just months after Mendeleev. In the 20th century, the table has been expanded and refined to include elements that have been synthesized or are the result of nuclear decay, rather than just those occurring naturally. But it still follows the same basic layout that Mendeleev predicted. Knowing the order of the elements is not just a great teaching tool to understand how and why chemical properties change down a group or across a period but also has had applications in industry allowing people to predict how different compounds will respond when they are reacted. Mendeleev's discovery has been a major catalyst in keeping chemistry developing over the last 140 years.
1: Sarah Castor Perry explaining how Mendeleev first proposed his periodic table for ordering chemical elements this week in 1869. Sarah will be delving into the science history books again next week. But that's all we have for this Naked Scientist Flash, which this week featured Helen Scales, Mira Senthalingam and Sarah Castor Perry, along with our guests Nicola Phillips, John Long and Kelvin Kem. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientists podcast, where each week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com and we'll be back with another roundup of hot science next week.
0: The Naked Scientists Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.